The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The word treason no longer whispered. This is Thursday, July 19th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. There was a time when if a news anchor proclaimed the foundations of our nation were in dire peril, they would be regarded as a lunatic, a maniac from society's fringe. Times have changed. Otherwise, bring on the straitjacket. I'm pulling the dire peril alarm because this is a national security crisis. We are told that Donald Trump fears his presidency will be delegitimized if his electoral college win is proven to be the result of the Russian attack. It might be that. Or it could be that Russian President Vladimir Putin has something on Donald Trump, something big, and that something could be one or more of several interesting possibilities, personal, financial, and political. There's evidence for each, some thick, some thin. So it could be that. Or it could be that Trump is covering up crimes he's committed or that were committed by others on his behalf and with his knowledge and that he is repaying Russia for his election victory. The evidence for this lies in his 2016 invitation to Russia to find Clinton's emails, his delight once they were released, and in the numerous contacts between his people and Russia. Beyond these, there are no other explanations on the table for Trump's handling of his summit this week with Vladimir Putin. There are no other apparent explanations for Trump's choosing to believe Putin over his own U.S. intelligence agencies about election meddling, to criticize them while bowing to Putin. There are no other apparent reasons Trump would be open to letting Russia help with the Russia investigation now that 13 Russians are charged with interfering in the 2016 election. Except that it was Putin's idea to let his spies work closely with ours, sharing evidence. Where's the harm? Trump saw no harm and called Putin's idea an incredible offer. He called it that twice. Yesterday evening, the New York Times broke the news that Trump has known since two weeks before he took office that Russia had interfered in the election through hacking and social media and that that attack had been personally ordered by Vladimir Putin. He knew that two weeks before Inauguration Day. In his first year and a half as president, Trump has repeatedly offered alternate explanations while casting doubt on the U.S. intelligence officials who had confirmed the attack and traced it back to Putin. A guy sitting on his bed could have done it, said Trump, some 400-pound guy. It could have been other countries, he said. It could have been anybody, he said, as recently as two days ago. When he's known since January 6, 2017, that Putin ordered the hacking of Democratic emails and all the rest of it. In a meeting with security officials, Trump saw what the CIA had learned from its Kremlin source. They showed him Russia's digital footprint based on previous hacks. That's the meeting that James Comey stuck around after to privately tell Trump about the Steele dossier and its notes about a kinky encounter with Russian prostitutes during the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow in 2013. So January 6, 2017 was a day and a meeting that Trump would remember. But in the months since, he's cast doubt on the Russia probe and pointed in other directions. In shifting the blame away from Russia, Trump was covering up a crime against the United States, calling it a witch hunt and distracting from it with attacks on investigators, Democrats, and of course, Hillary Clinton. And because Monday, July 16th, 2018 will soon be a date for history students, we should begin today with Trump's state of mind just before the summit because it clearly foretold what was about to happen. In his news conference at the end of the NATO summit, Trump had said of Putin, he's been very nice to me. I've been nice to him. He's a competitor, not a question of friend or enemy. He's not my enemy. And said Trump, hopefully someday, maybe he'll be a friend. And there it was. Putin may be an enemy of the U.S., but he is not an enemy of Trump's. And maybe he and Putin can be friends, he said. Never mind what past and present intelligence officials say. Putin's not his enemy. Trump's state of mind before the summit was evidence in a tweet early on the morning he would be meeting with Putin. Our relationship with Russia, he wrote, has never been worse thanks to many years of U.S. foolishness and stupidity and now the rigged witch hunt. 
Trump had reportedly been growling at his aides all weekend about the 12 Russian intelligence officers who were indicted just three days before meeting with Putin. His tweet appears to have been an attempt to soften the blow to Putin just before their meeting. Trump had, by Monday morning, decided to ignore his advisors and go with his gut, which told him he should side with Russia over United States intelligence officers. Before the meeting with Putin, Trump's White House staff gave him 100 pages of reading materials to prepare him to take a tough stand with Putin. According to a White House source to the Washington Post, Trump ignored most of that advice and went, quote, very much counter to the plan. The source says the president got verbal warnings from, quote, everyone around Trump to be very firm with Putin. No reading required. Still, Trump called an audible that he may have been planning to call all along. Trump didn't just ignore his advisors. He went beyond that. He defied them. Trump and Putin's 90-minute meeting lasted more than two hours in the end, just the two of them and their interpreters, although Putin is already fluent in English thanks to his training as a Russian spy and didn't need an interpreter. We will never truly know what was said in that long private meeting, but judging from the news conference that followed, we know a little about what they discussed. According to Trump, Putin had told him it's a shame there could be even a little bit of cloud over Trump's election victory. They had talked about the investigation into Russia's interference in that election. Sharing a stage with Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump said the U.S. had been foolish and stupid and that the U.S. shared the blame for bad relations with Russia. Standing next to Putin, Trump called the special counsel's investigation a witch hunt and called the Mueller probe a disaster for our country. In that 46-minute press conference with Putin, Trump refused to say he believes that Russia interfered with the election, refused to say he believes his own intelligence agencies. Trump also did not mention a single thing about Russia's theft of Crimea or its poisonings of people on foreign soil. Trump had no criticism for Putin or Russia, only for U.S. intelligence, U.S. law enforcement, and Hillary Clinton. What Trump did was offer absolution. When asked whether he believed his own intelligence people or Putin's denial, Trump said, quote, they said they think it's Russia. I have President Putin. He just said it's not Russia. And Trump added, I don't see any reason why it would be. And then he changed the subject to Hillary Clinton's emails. The Russian leader may have told more truth that day. When asked if he wanted Trump to win the election, Putin replied, yes, I did. When Putin was asked if he ordered an effort to help Trump win, Putin answered, yes, I did. Yes, I did, because he talked about bringing the U.S.-Russia relationship back to normal. That's when Putin offered to see if his people could help the Mueller team clear all this up. Putin only chuckled when he was asked if he had compromising material on Trump, and then he denied it, sort of. Trump responded that if there were such evidence, quote, it would have been out long ago. That may be true, unless it's being held back for some reason. But Trump's jubilation over his three and a half hours with Vladimir Putin faded quickly. The reviews for what he had just said and done were starting to pour in, and they were not the reviews he was hoping for. Some called Trump's conduct shameful. Some called it disgraceful. Some called it treason. Former CIA Director John Brennan was among the first to drop the treason bomb. Quoting Brennan's tweet, Trump's press conference performance in Helsinki rises to and exceeds the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. It was nothing short of treasonous, end quote. But Brennan continued, he is wholly in the pocket of Putin, adding, Republican patriots, where are you? What Trump did, by the way, does not meet the legal standard for treason, but he was clearly siding with a hostile foreign government over the United States of America. Current National Intelligence Director Dan Coats made an end run around the White House to counter Trump's remarks by saying the Russian government did interfere with the 2016 election to, quote, undermine our democracy. And Coates defiantly promised to stay on the job defending U.S. national security. Unlike usual protocol, Coates did not run his comments by the White House first. No, it wasn't just Democrats howling this time. It was Republicans, even Fox News, calling Trump's performance in Helsinki lame, disgusting, wrong, and ridiculous. Trump's favorite channel accused him of throwing U.S. intelligence under the bus in front of a fierce adversary. Sean Hannity stayed true to Trump, but in total, the president did not get the reviews he was hoping for, not even from his beloved Fox News.
This time was different. This time, even for many Republicans, Trump had gone too far. Democrats said it's time to take action against Trump and against Russia. Republicans did not say that, though. And they were careful, as always, not to say anything that would take any shine off Trump's election victory because they fear offending his base in this election year. But Republicans did turn up the pressure on Trump to try to repair the damage he'd done. At first, as usual, Trump refused to budge, tweeting that his meeting with Putin was, quote, even better than his meeting with our allies in NATO. And Trump took another swing at his imaginary fake news. As pressure from Republicans increased, Trump tried to walk back his Helsinki comments, but Trump had his chance at that news conference, and he blew it. On Tuesday, Trump claimed he'd misspoken, saying he meant to say he wouldn't see any reason why the meddling wouldn't have been Russia instead of what he actually said. But standing next to Putin on Monday, that is not what the president meant to say. Listen to the video again, and you'll hear him emphasize the word he claims to have misspoken. Trump also later read a statement written by advisor Stephen Miller stating he does accept the conclusions of U.S. intelligence but insists Russia interference did not affect the outcome of the election because to him that's the important thing. He read his prepared statement like a child reading a forced apology. He made little or no effort to be convincing. Off script, Trump told reporters it was, quote, sort of a double negative, so you can put that in, Trump told the reporters, adding, I think that probably clarifies things pretty good. And then Trump once again ad-libbed that the meddling could have been the work of, quote, other people also. As Trump explained, there are a lot of people out there. And he insisted again there was no collusion, even though no one had asked. Which means Trump wasn't walking back his Helsinki remarks at all. But it was good enough for Republicans who remain afraid of offending Trump's base in this election year. I'm glad he clarified it, said Marco Rubio. But the bell that Trump rang on Monday cannot be unrung. And now independents are joining Democrats and even a few Republicans in pushing for a change in Congress this fall. And as shocked as many of them were, some Republicans continued their efforts to tear apart the Russia investigation. After an unsuccessful grilling of FBI agent Peter Strzok last week, this week they've been interviewing Strzok's then-lover Lisa Page behind closed doors. Republican Steve King of Iowa says Lisa's been a lot more cooperative than Peter, apparently in terms of so-called evidence of political bias in that investigation. It's important to note that both Strzok and Page were removed from the case shortly after it fell into the hands of Robert Mueller. He handed off Strzok and Page to keep the probe from appearing to be biased, even when it wasn't. Congressman King now wants to interview everyone in the FBI who interviewed Clinton in the emails investigation to see if their stories match up to what Strzok had told FBI Director James Comey. Quoting King, We've got a tainted investigation here put together by some very, very biased people. But the investigation continued anyway, and in bigger, faster steps. Donald Trump said so many outrageous things in his campaign news conference two years ago this month, the most outrageous thing didn't get the standout attention it deserved. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing, said Trump, referring to Clinton's emails. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press, said Trump to Russia, if it were listening. It appears Russia was listening, because that very same day, Russia made its first attempt at breaking into the servers at Clinton's personal office. Same day Trump had requested it, Russian hackers started spearfishing email accounts. Trump's invitation came at 10.30 a.m., July 27, 2016. In Moscow at that hour, it was late afternoon that same day. We learned the start time of that Russian attack just this past week in a federal grand jury indictment of 12 Russian military intelligence officials. Until that indictment, we did not know that Russia's worst cyber attack came just hours after candidate Trump had suggested it. Trump's request for a hack of Clinton came shortly after that Trump Tower meeting between Russians and Trump's son, son-in-law, and campaign manager. Robert Mueller would like to ask Trump what he knew about the hacking and when. Trump's lawyers continue to work to avoid that interview. 
When Trump invited Russia to hack a U.S. presidential campaign, ears perked up at all the U.S. intelligence agencies that Republicans are busily trying to discredit. Back then, key Republicans condemned Trump's solicitation of Russian spies, but that changed after he won the election. 29-year-old Maria Butina was at the National Rifle Association Convention in 2016, and she attended a national prayer breakfast in Washington in 2017. But Maria Butina is not an American. Maria is Russian through and through. She had been a furniture store owner in Siberia until she landed a gig as assistant to Russian central banker Alexander Torshin, who's also a former Russian lawmaker and a friend of Vladimir Putin. Torshin is a lifelong member of the NRA, which supported Trump in the 2016 election with $36 million in campaign donations. And Maria had been to many NRA functions here in the U.S. Maria Butina had started befriending NRA members and other gun enthusiasts in this country in 2013 and sometimes hosted them in Moscow. Prosecutors say she used offers of sex to get close to politically connected men while reporting back to Russian intelligence. She had infiltrated the NRA, which had made generous donations to the Trump campaign, which is now part of the Mueller investigation. Butina also had a number of significant interactions with members of the Trump campaign. She helped our current national security advisor, John Bolton, make a video promoting gun rights in Russia when, in fact, there are no gun rights in Russia. In 2015, she wrote a magazine article proposing that the only way to improve U.S.-Russia relations was to elect a Republican president. A month later, she was among those at a Trump town hall meeting in Las Vegas. She got hold of the audience microphone and asked Trump about his policy on a relationship with Russia. I know Putin, said Trump, something he'd said several times only to deny it in the heat of the 2016 campaign. I'll tell you what, said Trump to the young Russian, we get along with Putin. And it was that same Maria Butina whose apartment was raided by the FBI back in April of this year and who testified secretly for the Senate Intelligence Committee several months ago and who was finally arrested Sunday when the FBI got word she would be leaving town soon, probably to flee the country. Maria has been in jail since her arrest on Sunday. Tuesday, she was formally indicted, charged with felony conspiracy. And that's what makes Butina different than the 13 other Russians charged with interfering in the 2016 election. Butina, unlike the others, is in U.S. custody and being held without bond, and she is being pressured to talk, and her lawyer says she's been offering to cooperate with federal investigators. And Russia now knows we have one of their election operatives behind bars. Unlike the others, Maria Butina will stand trial, and coverage of that trial will be watched by the American people and by people around the world. Specifically, Butina is accused of, wait for it, collusion with yet-to-be-named Americans. Butina is charged with espionage, accused of infiltrating politically influential organizations in the U.S. as an unregistered agent of the Russian Federation. Her indictment includes mention of unindicted co-conspirators, which means more people, Americans, could yet be charged with this same collusion. The indictment of Maria Butina also includes connections to the Trump campaign, the NRA, the Republican National Committee, and Russia. In its report, the FBI says Butina was trying to establish a back channel of communication for people connected to both the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Noteworthy, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, had reportedly also tried to set up a back channel to get around the prying eyes and ears of U.S. intelligence. On the same day, the NRA was mentioned in a federal criminal indictment as a funnel for money to flow from Russia into the Trump campaign. An interesting decision was announced at Trump's Treasury Department. Treasury announced that some nonprofit groups will no longer have to give the IRS the names of those who've donated $5,000 or more. Among those groups, the NRA. On the same day, the NRA was called out as a financial conduit between Trump and Russia. Treasury's new policy is good news for labor unions, the NAACP, and America's volunteer fire departments. It is also very good news for many conservative groups, including the Koch Brothers Charity and the NRA. 
Investigators for Special Counsel Robert Mueller had presented a grand jury with enough evidence to persuade that jury to hand down an 11-count indictment. It lays out in great detail, for the first time, how and when Russians hacked and planted malware on Democratic computers, how the hackers laundered their military identities using the names DC Leaks and Guccifer 2.0 to publish their bounty, and then spread it on social media, and how they used WikiLeaks to publish more widely what the Russian hackers had stolen. It was in early July when WikiLeaks had made its own request for dirt on Hillary. If you have anything Hillary-related, wrote WikiLeaks, we want it in the next two days because the Democratic Convention is approaching. The goal of WikiLeaks and the Russians was to help Trump by dividing and conquering Democrats. WikiLeaks expressed concern that at the convention, quote, she will solidify Bernie supporters behind her, adding, we think Trump has an only 25% chance of winning... So conflict between Bernie and Hillary is interesting. WikiLeaks published what the Russians had stolen on the eve of the Democratic Convention's kickoff. Because the email showed a party bias against Bernie Sanders, WikiLeaks and the Russians had met their goal, hardening the division among Democrats. Divide and conquer. But Mueller's indictment of those 12 Russian spies also revealed communications between Russia's Guccifer 2.0 and longtime Trump advisor Roger Stone. Stone got a message from the hacker known as Guccifer that reads, quote, Please tell me if I can help you. It would be a great pleasure. Stone is already a focus of the Mueller probe. Stone had predicted that Mueller would not find a connection between his friend Guccifer and Russian spies. Well, Roger Stone was wrong about that. Mueller has found that Guccifer is a Russian spy. Several, in fact, who are agents for the GRU, which is the modern-day version of the Soviet KGB. And this latest indictment, in which we learned how and when the cyber attack began, not only revealed some interesting timing, it had some interesting timing of its own. It came just days before Trump would meet face-to-face -face with Vladimir Putin. Now, the last time Trump and Putin met personally was a year ago when they met for the very first time. And at that time, Putin insisted Russia was innocent of meddling. If we did, said the Russian leader to Trump, we wouldn't have gotten caught because we're professionals. I thought that was a good point, said Trump later. Trump would soon be meeting with Putin after a dozen of Putin's military spies are indicted by an American grand jury as part of an ongoing investigation. And after 14 months of that Russia probe, there are about three dozen defendants in the case so far, sharing nearly 200 criminal charges. Five people have pleaded guilty and one's been sentenced. And five people we haven't heard anything about have now struck deals with Robert Mueller to testify in court against Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort in exchange for their own immunity. Mueller has asked the judge in the Manafort's case to grant immunity to five potential witnesses. On another matter, the judge has rejected Manafort's request to have his trial moved to a district that went for Trump in the 2016 election. Manafort's trial will stay in the district surrounded by the very Democratic Alexandria, Virginia. And that trial starts Tuesday. This part of the Russia investigation is almost over, according to sources inside. The Washington Post says it's been told that Mueller wants to wrap up a lot of his work by the end of this summer. That depends to a great degree on whether Trump agrees to be interviewed by Mueller or whether he fights that interview in court. Otherwise, Mueller wants much of his job to be done before fall. The paper sources say Mueller considers his job to be that of investigator, not prosecutor. He's expected to leave that to Congress and the American voters. In the meantime, the Russia probe continues with more witnesses to be interviewed. Mueller still needs to show whether any Americans did, knowingly or unknowingly, collude with Russian to throw U.S. politics into chaos. Mueller still needs to show whether Donald J. Trump, through intentions, words, or actions, obstructed justice by obstructing the investigation. This obstruction probe is reportedly complete except for getting Trump's own testimony. The clock is ticking. On summer and on a huge congressional election this fall. And Russia is still listening and acting. Trump's own director of national intelligence raised alarm about an increase in cyber attacks in the U.S. Dan Coates says we are at a critical point 
for acting forcefully against Russia. The system is blinking, said Coates, adding the digital infrastructure that serves this country is literally under attack. Coates says these will be remembered as warning signs similar to those we got before the 9-11 attack. The target, says Coates, are the federal government, the military, state and local governments, and American businesses. Even Trump's Homeland Security Secretary, Christian Nielsen, now says Russia attacks on U.S. elections are a direct attack on our democracy. And then yesterday, Trump contradicted them both, claiming that Russia is no longer targeting the U.S. In that awkward space between the indictment of 12 Russians and Trump's summit with Vladimir Putin, Trump tweeted furiously, again attacking the investigation and those associated with it. He again blamed Democrats and Obama for letting it happen on their watch, even as his own campaign manager sat in a jail cell. For the record, the Obama White House got Republicans and Democrats to agree on warning voters about the Russian attack before the election, nearly two months before it. But that warning was watered down by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Fast forward to the present when still no one in the Trump White House has condemned Russia for what we had just learned in those indictments. Trump ignored calls from Senators McCain and Schumer to call off his meeting with Putin now that we know what we know about the Russian attack. Instead, Trump spoke favorably about Putin and speculated they might become friends as if that were somehow the important thing. Quoting a former U.S. attorney, instead of treating this like the real Pearl Harbor moment that it is. Trump said yesterday, nobody's tougher on Russia than he is. Nobody keeps track of Trump's words like Salon.com's Bob Seska, who also doesn't mind using the word treason. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Donald Trump thinks you're stupid. He also thinks I'm stupid. He thinks even his most loyal supporters are stupid. Trump believes we'll accept anything that gurgles out of his overly articulated face hole because he said it. And if we don't believe his words, we're either his enemy or we're part of the fake news conspiracy against him. While appearing at a joint press conference with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki, Trump, among other treasonous remarks, told the world, quote, I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. Unquote. It was more than obvious from this statement and other surrounding remarks that Trump said exactly what he meant, that he believes Putin over the word of the U.S. government. Simply put, treason. The next day, however, and perhaps triggered by disgruntled congressional Republicans, Trump appeared to walk back the last part of the above explanation. Trump read a prepared statement before reporters in the cabinet room that included this, quote, In a key sentence in my remarks, I said would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. You can put that in, unquote. Fine. He backpedaled on that one sentence, leaving the other sentences spoken in defense of Putin completely untouched. Why? Because he wants his people to believe that it was the Democrats who hacked their own servers and are presently working with the deep state to cover it up. That's the kooky conspiracy theory he wants us all to believe. A theory, by the way, that's far kookier than the birth certificate nonsense or even the alleged three million illegal voters in California nonsense. And how do we know that he was lying? Well, among other examples, we only need to point out his repeated mention of, quote unquote, the server. Where's the server? He kept asking. I want to see the server. What's the deal with this business about the server? He's talking about a conspiracy theory here involving the Democratic Party. Trump wants us to believe the Democratic National Committee refused to hand over its email server because, again, his theory, they were covering up their own self-hacking. The same goes for his mention of John Podesta's office. All told, while Trump begrudgingly kind of, sort of, said it was the Russians who were responsible for the quote-unquote interference and other people, he said, he actually thinks the Democrats were pulling a double cross, leading to accusations of collusion and so forth. His server blurts, also repeated to Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson on Fox News Channel, entirely negate any post-Helsinki corrections from Trump or his staff. Meanwhile, Trump revisited the topic on Wednesday and repeated what's easily been his most ludicrous example of self-praise. Try not to laugh. Quote, 
There's never been a president as tough on Russia as I have been, unquote. We've heard this sort of boast before, and based on previous iterations, we know he's lying, and we know the truth is exactly the opposite of what he said. He always does this. Number one, April 2016, nobody knows the system better than I do. This is completely untrue. It's doubtful Trump read the Constitution cover to cover. It's even more doubtful that he knows how a bill becomes a law. If it wasn't described on Fox News or at InfoWars, he probably doesn't know it. Based on his first 18 months in office, he doesn't appear to know anything about the system. He didn't appear to know that CBC stands for Congressional Black Caucus. He thought Obamacare included language covering children who still live with their parents. Nope, there's language about people under 26 who can stay on their parents' insurance, but it doesn't matter whether they still live with their parents. Trump knows nothing. Number two, June 2015. There's nobody bigger or better at the military than I am. There's nobody bigger or better at the military? What? Number three, June 2016. There is nobody who understands the horror of nuclear more than me. How did he gain this insight? We can assume based on his television viewing habits that he watched footage of Hiroshima on Fox News, thus nobody understands nuclear more than him. Bear in mind that Trump didn't know what the nuclear triad is. Answering in a debate, quote, I think, I think for me, nuclear is just the power. The devastation is very important to me, unquote. Uh-huh. And then Trump said this about uranium, quote, you know what uranium is, right? This thing called nuclear weapons, like lots of things are done with uranium, including some bad things, unquote. <sighs> Number four, July 2016. I know more about Cory Booker than he knows about himself. Um, no. Number five, October 2016. Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. Nobody has more respect. Clearly, this is false. But it was also spoken when Trump was desperately trying to sidestep the now infamous Access Hollywood pussy-grabbing tape. Also notice the repeated use of nobody. As a corollary to our rule here, the more nobodies he uses, the bigger the lie. Number six, February 2016, nobody reads the Bible more than me. Not only does Trump not read the Bible, obviously, he simply doesn't read. In fact, there's evidence showing that he has trouble reading. Nevertheless, it's important to reiterate, words have no meaning to Trump. There are perhaps tens of millions of people around the world, including scholars and theologians, who've read the Bible far more often than Trump. Obviously, duh, many millions of people read the Bible more than Trump. Number seven, January 2017. There is nobody that feels stronger about the intelligence community and the CIA than Donald Trump. There's nobody. He also said about the CIA, I love you. I respect you. There's nobody I respect more. You know how we know he's lying a lot here? He said nobody three times. And days earlier, he compared the intelligence community to Nazi Germany while referring to it with scare quotes around the word intelligence. Ultimately, let there be no doubt Trump continues to telegraph his ballooning guilt in all of this. His desperation to cover up his own remarks adds all kinds of nuclear fuel to an already kiloton-level explosion of criminality and treason. And if it's obvious to those of us just watching, it has to be crystal clear to men like Robert Mueller and his team of untouchables. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, The Daily Banter, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. Join me with him there this coming Tuesday. Republicans in Congress were expecting their discrediting of law enforcement to reach its crescendo after that public grilling of FBI agent Peter Strzok. It didn't work out that way. Republicans thought that in Strzok they had proof that the Russia investigation was every bit as rigged as the president has claimed. Strzok had texted to his lover that Trump would be stopped. Republicans believe that meant the FBI would stop Trump. In a hearing that was contentious from the start, Agent Strzok clarified that his text was an assurance to his lover after Trump had attacked the Muslim parents of a fallen American soldier. Quoting Strzok from the hearing that was meant to corner him, my presumption was based on that horrible, disgusting behavior that the American population would not elect somebody demonstrating that behavior to be president of the United States. When the facts got in the way, Republican Louis Gohmert turned to insults, accusing Agent Strzok of smirking and asking repeatedly about Strzok's extramarital affair. 
The hearing was tense from the start. Strzok made it clear he couldn't give details from the Russia probe because it's an ongoing investigation. When Strzok refused to give those details, he was immediately threatened with a contempt of Congress charge right at the top of the hearing. There was yelling, including comments about an insane asylum and that somebody should give Gohmert his meds. Republicans balked, however, at releasing a transcript of that day's democracy-damaging hearing because, as they explained, it's an ongoing investigation. No, Republicans did not get the victory they were expecting on the day of that public grilling of Peter Strzok. In fact, Strzok essentially shut down their accusation that politics had influenced the FBI's investigation. Strzok called it another victory notch in Putin's belt, that hearing. I was one of a handful of people, said Strzok, who knew the details of Russian interference and possible connections with members of the Trump campaign. That information, said Strzok, had the potential to defeat Mr. Trump, but the thought of exposing that information never crossed my mind because it was and still is an active investigation. It's also a righteous investigation in Strzok's view. He told Congress that politics had not affected his work even once in his 26 years with the agency. He said that people above him and below him investigating the Russia attack would not tolerate improper behavior. He says a deep state conspiracy within the FBI, quote, couldn't happen. Republicans, however, still believe the investigation is political, but the nonpartisan investigation continues regardless of what they think. Trump's demolition derby with our allies, updates on immigration, the Supreme Court, North Korea, the trade war, and the end of poverty after this. More frequently these days, we're asked to pay for something we used to get free, the news. Now, this news comes to you without a paywall and without corporate ownership, and it's free. So please do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon for that, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for homeschool, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, please support this free newscast another way, through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. There was little enough reason for optimism about Trump's visit with Putin, considering the behavior the world witnessed at the important stops along the way to meet with our allies. From the NATO meeting in Brussels to London and Scotland, Trump's European swing was a diplomatic train wreck. It started at a NATO breakfast meeting in which Trump accused Germany of being, wait for it, a captive of Russia. Totally controlled by Russia, said Trump. It's a statement against an ally that is as insulting as it is untrue. Members of Trump's entourage looked very uncomfortable about that statement. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly winced and turned his head away. Trump was referring to a deal that has Germany buying natural gas from Russia, and while the wisdom of that arrangement is questionable, it does not make Germany a captive of Russia. Hours later, when Trump would actually meet with German Chancellor Angela Merkel, he said the two countries have a very, very good relationship. Although Trump would eventually heap praise on Merkel, he could not unring the captive-to-Russia bell. Trump's flattering words toward Merkel fell flat as the two stood stiffly before the cameras with no handshakes and no real smiles. Breaking up the European Union is very much in Russia's interest, just as is the fracturing of NATO and the G7, to which Trump has also contributed. It was at the NATO summit that the president of the European Council warned Trump, appreciate your allies. You don't have that many. But Trump was only just getting started at that summit in Brussels. He threw it all into chaos by suggesting the U.S. would leave NATO if the Allies don't start spending more money on weapons and defense. Trump was demanding that the other NATO leaders pour billions into their military budgets and to do it right away. He did so armed with the opposite of facts. He claimed that the U.S. was spending $33 billion more on NATO this year. It's really one-third of that, $11 billion. Trump claimed that other NATO countries had been cutting their NATO budgets. Also untrue, their contributions have increased since Russia's stealing of Crimea from Ukraine. An American ambassador resigned on Friday over Trump accusing the European Union of being established to take advantage of the U.S. and for Trump getting the facts wrong. Trump's demand for immediate increases in spending threw the NATO meetings into a tailspin, keeping it from dealing with its own agenda. 
And then Trump moved the goalposts, demanding that NATO countries spend 4% of their budgets on the NATO military instead of the 2% agreed on after Crimea. Some leaders said they would ask their legislators for the money that Trump was demanding, but there were no guarantees. Some leaders said they would not succumb to Trump's demands. But all of them, including Trump, left the meeting saying they believe in NATO and plan to stay in it. In the meantime, the kind of chaos and division that brings a smile to Vladimir Putin. Then after a brief stay at the White House, Trump was off to London, accusing our allies of treating us unfairly and saying his meeting with Putin would likely go better than the meetings he would have along the way. Who would think, asked Trump, who would think? Trump's arrival in Britain was heralded by one of the country's biggest tabloid newspapers, The Sun, owned by Trump supporter Rupert Murdoch. In an exclusive interview with that paper, Trump severely undercut the leader of our greatest ally. He said Prime Minister Theresa May was handling poorly her country's separation from the European Union. He said he advised May to cut British ties to the EU completely, but that she ignored his advice. May would later reveal that Trump had advised her to sue the European Union rather than negotiate with it. Trump also suggested in that recorded interview that Conservative Party leader Boris Johnson would make a great prime minister, never mind the one with whom he was about to meet. Later, Trump would deny that he had criticized Prime Minister May and suggested that a recording would prove that. Much of The Sun's recorded interview was released to the public online, and it proves Trump did criticize May. Trump had not only lied about what he had said, he had lied by claiming that a recording would prove him correct. Trump went on in that interview to insult the mayor of London, who's been a harsh critic of the American president. Trump also complained about the protests, saying they'd made him feel unwelcome in the UK. It was the mayor of London who gave permission for a giant balloon to be displayed in the protest, a likeness of Trump as an angry, diapered baby who's holding a cell phone. Protesters followed Trump as best they could throughout his London visit, complete with that giant helium balloon baby. 100,000 Brits took to the streets to protest Trump. The protesters made clear they were not angry at the U.S., just Trump. And then it was off to one of his clubs in Scotland for a relaxing weekend of golf before his summit with Vladimir Putin. But 10,000 Scots turned out in Edinburgh to protest Trump's visit, and 50 gathered within sight of the man just outside one of his golf courses. The balloon baby also made the trip. So did a paraglider who violated protected airspace to fly a banner that read, Trump, well below par, hashtag resist. Before Trump left Scotland, he did another interview, this time with CBS News. In it, he called the European Union a foe of the U.S. alongside Russia and China, and he continued his attacks on our allies and continued his courtship of Vladimir Putin. When asked if he planned to demand that Putin turn over to the U.S., the Russian agents Mueller had indicted, Trump responded, I hadn't thought about it. Back in Washington, the U.S. was telling our allies in the EU that, yes, they would face sanctions if they continued to do business with Iran now that the U.S. has unilaterally pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement. European countries had asked for exemptions, as had the leaders of Britain, France, and Germany. Another blow to our allies, another victory for Putin. And then came Monday. Trump and Putin were in Helsinki, Finland, where U.S. and Russian or Soviet presidents usually meet. But this meeting would be anything except usual, and we knew that going in. About six months into his presidency, Donald Trump launched his re-election campaign for 2020. And in the year and a half that's passed since, Trump's raised more than $88 million to fight anyone, Republican or Democrat, who may run against him. And that campaign has already spent more than $33 million, some of it to raise even more money. Trump already has a fundraising head start on any and all challengers. In the second quarter of this year, April, May, and June, Trump raised nearly $18 million, the campaign's second biggest quarter since its start. He's spent $600,000 on Make America Great Again hats and T-shirts. He spent over a million dollars in legal fees in that same quarter. And in addition to all that, a separate political action group dedicated to Trump has raised millions, including $2 million from a Los Angeles real estate developer and a million from a Las Vegas casino executive. 
It isn't clear whether Republicans will turn on Trump and offer up other possible presidential candidates for 2020, but it is increasingly clear which Democrats are running. Former Vice President Joe Biden, New Jersey's Cory Booker, California's Kamala Harris, and Bernie Sanders. But leading that pack is Massachusetts' Elizabeth Warren. All five of them have been hopscotching the country, not declaring their candidacies. All five have been raising money for the Democratic Party. They range from male to female, younger to older, moderate to progressive, and they span several races. The struggle continues between progressives and moderates within the Democratic Party, with California right in the middle of it. The state's Democratic Party has voted not to endorse 84-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein in her re-election bid this year, but to back instead a younger individual, former state Senator Kevin DeLeon. He got 65% of the party's vote to Feinstein's 7%. Feinstein may get the last laugh, however, since she easily outperformed DeLeon in the primary and has 10 times the money he has. Should a president in Trump's situation be allowed to select a lifetime member of the United States Supreme Court? That question has yet to be addressed. But even before Trump's appalling words in Helsinki, there was a movement to make sure that every Democrat in the Senate votes against confirming Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. Ads were running in the states of Democratic senators who were thought to be at risk for voting for Kavanaugh in the red states of North Dakota, West Virginia, and Indiana. The ads say a Kavanaugh Supreme Court could take away your health care if you have a pre-existing condition. All three of those senators, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, are up for re-election this year. The campaign to sway these senators may be helped by what Trump said in Helsinki. In order to block Kavanaugh's nomination, all 49 Democrats would have to vote no, along with two Republicans. Trade war update. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says the tariff talks with China have broken down with no clear path to resolution. China, meanwhile, was blasting the Trump administration, accusing it of acting erratically and accusing Team Trump of insisting, quote, on a fighting a trade war with Russia. Democrats and Republicans in Congress are watching this carefully, skeptical of where it's headed in light of the damage already being done to the economy. Soybean farmers and industries that make things out of metal are squealing the loudest, feeling the pinch of China's retaliation to Trump's aggressive trade taxes. The Chinese government newspaper's front-page editorial wrote about the, quote, crazy Trump administration. The paper said the administration's maverick style is clearly a sign that they are crazy. North Korea update. The Kim Jong-un summit, of which Trump is so very proud, doesn't seem to be heading anywhere. Representatives from North Korea and the U.S. were supposed to have met a week ago today to talk about returning the remains of American soldiers who died there in the early 1950s. The U.S. military had already provided the coffins and the wooden shipping crates for each of those soldiers. The North Koreans never showed up for the meeting. We also learned this week that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo did ask North Korea if it had, as reported by U.S. intelligence, recently increased its production of fuel for nuclear weapons. Pompeo says he told the North Koreans that if they have increased their nuclear weapons fuel production, it's not good for U.S. relations with their government. There's every reason to believe that U.S. intelligence is correct since the production has been occurring at a facility near the expressway near the North Korean capital of Pyongyang. Pompeo says the North Koreans assured him that what the U.S. intelligence was seeing was a construction job shoring up that facility to withstand heavy rains, you know, in case it rains. Immigration update. By court order, the Trump government has just one week left to reunite more than 2,000 children with their migrant families. That's for the kids between the ages of 5 and 17. The government missed the court-imposed deadline for reuniting the younger migrant children, babies and toddlers, the under-five kids. The judge who ordered the reunifications and ordered them to be carried out quickly was not pleased about that missed deadline, accusing Trump's Health and Human Services Department of either not understanding its orders or defying them. And then on that busy, insane Monday of this week, the judge in that case ordered the Trump administration to stop deporting those reunited families and then to resume only after giving each family at least a week to decide whether their kids would stay 
or be deported with the parents. The ACLU has told the judge there were persistent and increasing rumors that mass deportations would be carried out immediately upon reunification. Today is the deadline for the government to provide a list of parents not eligible for reunification, which includes those with criminal records. It's a story many African Americans know by heart, the story of Emmett Till. Till was visiting Mississippi from his home in Chicago in 1955. A white woman accused him of making sexual advances on her. He said he didn't. Days later, Till was kidnapped, lynched, and beaten, tortured, and shot. His mangled corpse was found in the Tallahatchie River. His coffin was carried back to Chicago, where it was left open for the world to see, and thousands waited in line to see in person the results of this white vigilante violence. Interviewed by the author of a book about Till's death, the woman now admits she lied, but Emmett Till died shortly after her accusation more than 60 years ago. That woman, Carolyn Donham, is now in her 80s. She told the author nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. Today, a man at her door says Carolyn doesn't want to talk to anyone. And although she could be charged for her lie of decades ago, the prosecutor says the only charge available is perjury and that he won't likely pursue it, given Carolyn's advanced age. At the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, hundreds of steel columns hang from the ceiling to memorialize the hundreds of black men, women, and children who had been lynched in the South. There's a movement to pass a federal anti-lynching law as a way to honor those who died from racism. Poverty, says the Trump administration, has ended. More or less. The President's Council of Economic Advisors declared this past week that the nation's war on poverty, quote, is largely over and a success. And with that, the Treasury Department laid out a case for imposing new additional work requirements on people in the government's safety net. The Trump administration claims that millions of Americans have become too dependent on help from the government. Treasury is following orders from the top, an executive order from Trump in April that okayed the use of work requirements for welfare. Treasury says people getting government benefits need to be more self-sufficient. In present-day Alabama, Walter Carr's car broke down outside his apartment the evening before he was supposed to start his new job at a moving company. He texted everyone he knew and asked them all to give him a lift, but no dice. So Walter came up with a plan B. Google Maps told him it would take a little over eight hours to walk to his new job. Being a cross-country runner, Walter figured he could do it in even less time than that. He ate a hearty breakfast for dinner and caught a short nap, and then Walter started walking. He walked 20 miles to get to that first day on the job. It took him all night to walk that 20 miles, and he didn't quite make it. He was still miles away at the foot of an incline when Walter decided to sit down in a bank parking lot and rest at 5.30 in the morning. A Birmingham, Alabama police officer pulled up to make sure everything was all right. The officer gave Walter a ride for that last four miles. Walter had arrived at work for that first day early. The officer told Walter's supervisor that Walter was a really good kid who'd been walking all night just to get to work. The woman was moved to tears and offered Walter some food or, if he'd like, a place to nap before starting time. No, said Walter, I'd rather get started. The moving company's owner was impressed and gave Walter Carr a new car. Bad news for some big names, the Emmys, Scorpions, and the week's best highway spills in the third and final segment up next. Hair today, gone tomorrow. Did you know that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35? I didn't. The hairline recedes, a bald spot appears, and what's that going to look like a year from now or two years? Maybe you just like to keep the hair you have as long as possible. Pro tip, uh, don't buy the stuff at convenience stores and gas stations. Buy the stuff from medicine and science. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. ForHims.com connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. ForHims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness. There's no waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and it's all much faster. Just answer a few quick questions, and the doctor reviews your answers and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. The website is amazing. 
And right now, my listeners get a one-month trial of Hims for just 5 bucks and save hundreds of dollars on doctor and pharmacy visits. See their website for details. This is a very limited offer, so hit pause right now and go to forhims.com slash BBNC. I'll spell it. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash BBNC. Forhims.com slash BBNC. It was a bad news week for a lot of big names in the corporate world. Bad PR for MGM Resorts, Tesla, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Netflix, AT&T, Papa John's Pizza, and Johnson & Johnson. Black eyes all around. The gunshots that killed 58 people in the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history were fired from a room in the MGM Resorts International Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, known as Mandalay Bay. This week, MGM which is being sued and threatened with suits by the victims' families, MGM sued the families. It was a legal maneuver, an attempt to limit any liability judgments. MGM says it's exempt from liability because it's certified by the Department of Homeland Security. MGM's lawyers were doing their jobs. But the headlines of a big company suing the families of the dead made a lot of people think less of that resort company. And then there was the implication by Tesla's Elon Musk that one of the divers rescuing the cave boys in Thailand is a pedophile. The diver had accused Musk of trying to score PR points by offering to build a miniature submarine to rescue the boys when time was critical. Musk later apologized in a tweet. The controversial founder of Papa John's Pizza used the N-word in a conference call about racial sensitivity and then apologized and resigned after getting called out for it. The company John Schnatter left behind has been trying for a week to distance itself from him, but he isn't going quietly. Schnatter now says he was blackmailed into quitting and he regrets resigning. In the meantime, the company has removed his image from its advertising, kicked him out of his office, and asked him to stop talking to the media. Papa John's has dropped to fourth place among the big national pizza slingers, but it's still worth one and three quarters billion dollars, and John Schnatter still owns 30% of the company's stock. His former company says it will work hard now to win back the public's favor. Johnson & Johnson, for not warning about a possible cancer risk from its bath and baby powders, has been ordered to pay well over four and a half billion dollars to 22 women and their families. Johnson & Johnson says it will appeal, and experts say it will likely win that appeal. But Johnson & Johnson's stock dropped more than 1.5%. AT&T had already warned its new apparent employees at HBO to brace themselves for budget cuts. An AT&T executive is already running HBO and CNN. But the Justice Department stepped in this past week to put a stop to the big AT&T Time Warner merger that was approved by a federal judge a month ago. Trump has made clear his disdain for CNN and its fake news. Others worry about one company owning too much of our media, TV stations, a movie studio, 160 million wireless customers, and the satellites that deliver it all through DirecTV and AT&T itself. And now all of that is on hold. It was also a bad week for HBO. The pay network that once got the most Emmy nominations each year got dusted this year by Netflix. AT&T says it needs the Time Warner merger to compete with Netflix, and it's likely to win its battle in court. Elsewhere, Disney's in the lead to buy 21st Century Fox, and Comcast is bidding against Fox for control of Europe's satellite TV service Sky. Netflix was expecting a big influx of new subscribers after a dip, but in the latest quarter, the company fell a million subscribers short of its goal. Netflix investors are not happy, so there may be budget cuts at that big Emmy factory as well. Amazon's Prime Day sale got off to a rough start, with web pages crashing on phones and desktops. Amazon stockholders were even more unhappy than the customers. Google got hit with a $5 billion fine from the European Commission for pushing its own apps onto the owners of Android phones. That's on top of the $2.7 billion antitrust fine slapped on Google by the European Commission last year. Executives from Google, Facebook, and Twitter were to testify more this week for the House Judiciary Committee's investigation of Russian election meddling. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg 
talked himself into a corner this week saying he would not ban posts questioning the Nazi Holocaust because he had said those users were not getting it wrong intentionally. He's now backed down a bit. It's been a rough week for big names and big business. Most of the corporate pain self-inflicted. In this week's Twitter purge of fake accounts, Donald Trump's page lost more than 200,000 followers. Katy Perry lost nearly 3 million followers. But Twitter itself was the big loser, purging nearly 8 million of its followers, more than 12% of its followers. Hotel Transylvania 3 was this week's top movie with 44 million in North American ticket sales in its opening weekend. Dwayne Johnson's Skyscraper opened in a distant third place with 25 million, half of what he made that time he saved the world in San Andreas. Ant-Man and the Wasp fell to second place in its second week with 29 million. Moviegoers and critics give a big thumbs up to the new film Sorry to Bother You, but good luck finding a theater that's showing it. You can get help with that, along with previews, showtimes, and tickets by clicking my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. HBO did not dominate the nominations this year as it has for the past 17 years. But HBO's Barry got a wave of Emmy nominations this week. So did Game of Thrones, as usual, which is this year challenged by The Handmaid's Tale. Ted Danson got nominated for the NBC dramedy The Good Place. Netflix's Glow looks like a favorite for best TV comedy. And Brandon Victor Dixon got a nod for tearing it up as Judas on NBC's live concert performance of Jesus Christ Superstar on Easter Sunday. Also nominated, At Home with Amy Sedaris and Silicon Valley. It was the first year in many that Modern Family was not among the nominees. Emmy also bypassed Curb Your Enthusiasm. Both shows may have run their course. John Oliver is expected to again beat Colbert and all the rest for Best Variety Talk Show. No nominations for NBC's Jimmy Fallon, but Samantha Bee and Trevor Noah are finally among the nominees. The 70th Annual Emmy Awards will be handed out on Monday, September 17th in prime time. SNL Weekend Update's Colin Jost and Michael Che will host the ceremony, which is produced by their boss, Lauren Michaels. Even after a weaker season than the one before it, Saturday Night Live picked up another 21 nominations this year. Customs agents in Philadelphia say they have seized more than 100 Super Bowl rings. Counterfeits from China. The agents say the poor craftsmanship caught their eyes. Checking with the NFL confirmed their suspicions. At 10 grand per ring, they could have been worth more than a million dollars. Quoting the local field director, customs officers are like offensive linemen. Both are on the front line and work hard to protect something important. The scorpions are trying to kill us. In Brazil, scorpion deaths are on the rise as Brazil's cities spill into previously wild countryside. Brazilians got stung by scorpions more than 126,000 times last year, and the death toll has risen to nearly 200 people a year. Most of those stung are young children, but most of the deaths occur among the elderly. Most towns in Brazil don't have the anti-venom to treat those stings, and health officials say the situation is going to get worse. A 19-year-old University of Miami modeling student was in the Bahamas with her boyfriend and his dad. They all decided it would be good to get some pictures of her swimming with the nurse sharks that seemed so friendly and playful at a yacht club. They saw that other people had taken pictures with the shark and that Katerina should too. The pictures they posted on Instagram also show the moment a five-foot shark bit her on the wrist. It was an accident, says a forgiving Katerina. In Oregon, a man called 911 to get out of one of those escape rooms that are so popular. People pay to be put into rooms, buildings, and mazes for the challenge of figuring out how to escape, you know, for fun. This kind of thing, this 911 call, it's happened before. Police getting calls from people trapped in escape rooms, but the calls usually come from criminals, not actual customers. This guy wasn't even in an escape room per se. He had broken into the business but couldn't get out because he had damaged the back door so badly on his way in. In Great Falls, Virginia, 
a man spent $300,000 on a new car that got a five-star rating by Autocar. He got a McLaren 720S luxury sports car, and he hit the road. And because it's a really fast car with an excited new driver, he also hit a tree. Bought it on Friday, destroyed it on Saturday. $300,000 gone. A fly was the undoing of a long-haul truck driver on I-65 in Indiana this week. The 28-year-old driver was headed southbound one morning when a fly was sucked in through an open window. The driver says he tried to swat the bug, at which point he drove into a guardrail on the right. And then he hit a construction barrier. And then his trailer came loose. And then it overturned. And then it spilled 42,000 pounds of rolled plastic wrap onto the road. No one got hurt but the driver was cited for not staying in his lane. No word on the condition of the fly. And finally, in China, a roll of cloth spilled onto a highway in Suzhou City. The driver was unaware that this spool of fabric was unwinding itself as he drove. The spill occurred over a span of more than 300 yards, one yard at a time. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.